mouse plugged in. I'm oh, using no. my trackpad like a schmuck. Greg, Greg, and, the, and now more than ever, how are you doing? Well, what are you doing? Yeah, we should probably uh, just let people know, or the hour and day at which we're recording this at this moment, um, because you know we know. I said a few weeks ago we don't know anybody personally affected by COVID nineteen, at least in a in a deep uh, sense. Uh, not anymore. All of our best mm. friends uh, had a party a few Saturdays ago, and now and now look what's happened. <laughs> I know they don't understand the whole point of, of uh, contact tracing and, and, and hear, herd immunity. It, it's so disappointing. It's so disappointing. And I feel John, bad. come on. No, it's not, It's that the, the best people somehow got the gravest injustice <laughs> of all. You're right. You're right. Yeah. It's the best people. There was a great tweet by some kind of Republican representative that said, hey, haven't you noticed that all the Republicans are getting COVID and not the Democrats? Very suspicious. <laughs> absolutely. And, and she's this she close is to absolutely correct. Exactly. She's, <laughs> she's absolutely correct. Yeah, and and so like anybody um, who doesn't have the integrity scruples of, of those infected by this disease, <laughs> obviously shouldn't be making jokes, shouldn't be making fun. No, we should and not so, be making light. And so that's why I want to. I've got our soundboard prepared, and I want to, you know, just throw in a few like uh, taps here. Oh wait, I keep hitting the wrong button here. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, oh, Greg, right don't button. accidentally yeah. don't accidentally cut anyone's mic. Okay, that would be rude. No, all right, no, obviously no. They so, should be but, allowed to interrupt. Can you believe all these events happened in the same week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know it's going too fast, but I, I gotta say. It, it, in a moment of vertices now, I am absolutely delighted every time I check social media. This is the funniest <laughs> news story you could possibly have. Obviously, I don't wish death on anybody, but if you can't laugh at this, then this you got to check your heartbeat. And Yeah, because this, come on, this is objectively hilarious. I mean, it is the definition of poetic irony. I mean, come on. Like, everyone's, like, we uh, we read the AV Club a lot, and they've been doing all these headlines that are like, uh, for anyone who's been curious, we're going to define Scheidenfreude for you, okay? We're going to define Chekhov's gun, because we think people are using it a little too loose these days, but ooh, let, let us set the record straight, good sir. I don't know how you feel about that, because you're, usually you're the pompous one who usually brings these things up, but... <laughs> but it, it depends, I mean, because you and I have visited the AV Club a long time, when... It, it was like a new internet, a web 2.0, like sarcastic uh, void, <laughs> not void, but like something that earnestly, you know, took pop culture seriously. And now it's like alongside E.T. in terms of doing junkin interviews. And they went a little too mainstream. Once it got yeah. bought up by Gizmodo, it's like, all right, now I guess we got to do serious. No, they're part of, yeah, they're part of Gizmodo. They came under Univision and now they're all part of this like weird, uh, private equity uh, vultures or whatever who just stripping mm-hmm. for parts and, and yeah. seeing what value they could squeeze out of it like the last drops out of an orange but mm-hmm. anyway I don't, it's I all don't freelancers be, yeah. now yeah uh, you're, you're right Greg this is why I asked how are you doing because I could tell again, I could tell that you had I'm you doing had great boiling this, rage <laughs> that, no this new cycle has been a gift and oh. it's not the only gift uh, we've received I, I want to also point out that this episode will be released on October 8th our birthday John mm. and I are now 48 years young. Mm. And so, John, how are you celebrating uh, your autumn years? Um, well, I'm celebrating with uh, my best friend and birthday best friend, Matt Damon, and uh, Pope <laughs> yeah. John Paul II, both mm-hmm. born on October 8th, October 8th babies like us. Yep. you know. And we're proud. We're all proud uh, Roman Catholics. And we're all going to celebrate in the, cla- the classic Roman Catholic way. 12 Hail Marys and uh, six Our Fathers. So that's okay. how I plan to celebrate. Yeah. Great. How about you? How about you? I'm celebrating with my birthday brother, Nick Cannon, 
mm. on his radio show um, oh. because he has a big radio show based out of here in Los Angeles, and so I'm going to be doing I'm going to be doing his. I radio haven't heard show. anything about it. He, uh, does he have any hot <laughs> takes on that show? Well, uh, John, I'm glad you asked because it does is. Does he have our any birthday. nuanced opinions he wants to share with us? <laughs> exactly, because it is our birthday. You could share hot takes, and you can't be mad at us. That's the rules. That's and right. And so we obviously know Nick Cannon's opinions about you know uh, certain groups of uh, religious <laughs> and and uh, and adherents. Let's say. Um, so, some of which we share, some of which we don't. Uh, but <laughs> most of which we don't. Most let's not. Yeah. Let's not go too far. <laughs> no, I, I was speaking for you. I, obviously, I don't agree with them. You do, but like you know. Anyway, well, that's neither here nor there. Do we have some overlap when it comes to the Israeli policy? Absolutely. <laughs> but other than that, it's night and day. Let me tell you. <laughs> but anyway, we can share a hot take, and again, nobody can get mad at us. So, John, bring us a hot take. Come on, bring that fire. Throw uh, a fastball right down the um, middle. Come on, let's go. Uh, See, that's the thing. I'm too much of a Philistine, so all my opinions are like, oh, it's pretty good. Like, my <laughs> hottest take right now, mostly because he runs the industry as Ryan Murphy is garbage, but that's only because he's got three things coming out on Netflix every week. So please, <laughs> Ryan Murphy, stop. For the love of God, I can't take anymore. <laughs> that's that's a fair point. Yeah, that that's not exactly a hot take. It, de- it depends on who you're talking to, because he obviously has a, a big group of admirers, but it's clear that it's not... A lot of the times he doesn't reach for Emmy award-winning material. He's no, yeah, but he's a lot of style over substance because yeah. you watch these shows like we've been watching Ratched, which is basically just like American Horror Story, which is it's a thing, it's a series. Y'all of remember, things. Y'all, y'all remember Nurse Ratched, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's 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 just a series of things that happen, mm-hmm. and it's like like again, it lulls you with amazing production design and good performances. It lulls you into just like kind of your eyes glaze over and then something really fucked up will happen. And then you're like, ah! and like, and then you kind of look back and realize, Oh wait, nothing was said. Nothing was accomplished. Nothing happened. <laughs> <laughs> when you were entertained for, I don't know, five minutes, right? Out of, like, out of how long is the out series? Of 10 episodes? 48, 48 minutes yeah. an episode. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. yeah. That's all it takes. That's mm-hmm. all it needs. And you know yeah. what? Sarah Paulson's getting money. That's all that matters. <laughs> She's gotten a paycheck. Yeah, I, I don't have any hot takes. Mine, mine was going to be that the I, I mentioned it a few weeks ago. The Cats movie is good, and you people, mm-hmm. you haters are swine. Um, <laughs> but that movie came out ages ago, um, mm-hmm. eons ago at this point. So that's not a hot take. That's more of a warm breeze. Um, well, like we were saying earlier, like the news is moving too fast. It's impossible for any of us to have takes. To have takes, yeah. you know, to have a good hot take, you need to at least let it marinate a little bit and go like, him, excuse me. Let's, it also let's has... stop the chortling and let's discuss this seriously. I say it's a good thing Donald Trump has COVID. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, that was, that's not necessarily a hot take because it also has to be contrarian. I think most of the... Mm. Uh, most of America agrees that no, they don't want our president to die while in office. However, it's hilarious. It would be hilarious <laughs> if Donald Trump, this particular president, would die in office due to a uh, serious illness that he did not take seriously and did not show the leadership in protecting other people from. So, th- again, I'm not saying it's a good thing, but <laughs> it's also not a contrarian opinion. Let's say that that requires nuance. Like hot takes, got to be. It's got to be quick. It's got to be firm. Mm-hmm. And it has to be contrarian, and so that's something that I think we get at as aspiring snobs when we look at classics like um, 
they're not exactly these aren't exactly fresh opinions however they are firm and oftentimes they are nitpicky they are contrarian and i feel like we have just the candidate uh for a film that we're talking about here Exactly. Uh, I've been I've been kind of trying to uh, fill up my film bona fides, and one of my number one sources I love to go to is the IMDb Top 250. Ooh, just a wonderful bunch of gems there. And <laughs> today we'll be revisiting what is currently sitting at 28, the highest ranking no. one I have not yet seen, and this is the 1999 film, The Green Mile. All a bit of book. You've been condemned to die by a jury of your peers. Sentence imposed by a judge in good standing in this state. You have anything to say before your sentence is carried out? Yeah. Home to fried chicken dinner with gravy on the taters, and I want to shit in your hat. I got to have Mae West sit on my face because I'm one horny motherfucker. <laughs> what if I told you mm-hmm. you were going to see a movie based on a work by Stephen King, mm-hmm. directed by Frank Darabont, mm-hmm. set in a prison? Mm. That centers on a story of injustice and redemption uh, about a man uh, put away for a crime he didn't commit. Um, what, what, what would your thoughts be about that? What, 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 what kind of images conjure in your mind? Uh, my thoughts were, haven't we been here before? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm obviously talking about the Shawshank Redemption, which is currently at number one at the IMDb mm-hmm. Top 250. Uh, I, I think there's no way that you can't compare the Green Mile to Shawshank Redemption. Does it suffer from that comparison? <laughs> <laughs> I would say yes, uh, especially speaking for both of us. I feel like I can speak. Wait, for are you, you saying well. it suffer? It suffers in comparison to the greatest film of all time, <laughs> <laughs> possibly just a little bit. Yeah, um, yeah. I, I don't want to go as far to say it's the greatest film of all time. It's definitely up there, but um, yes, uh, I think it also kind of struggle. It struggles under that comparison. Also, just given the subject matter this is dealing with, I also think that uh, it welcomes some, uh, let's say, unfavorable comparisons to a certain level of stereotyping, shall we say? <laughs> yeah, so there Okay, let's let's review the movie on its own merits. All right, okay. this is the story of a prison guard in Louisiana prison. Uh so uh let's give Stephen King his due. He didn't just base mm-hmm. a story outside of his window in Maine. He mm-hmm. actually tried to research another area and so this is set on a, a death row prison in Louisiana, um, mm-hmm. where our lead our lead guard, uh, played by Tom Hanks, is plenty. It's generally a genial, kind of serious group of guards who lead prisoners to their death, and so. Now I think you're giving Stephen King a little bit too much credit because, all right, finally, I'm not going to set a story set in Maine. I'm going to set it in Depression Era South. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is unfettered ground, right? Yeah, and so. I, I don't know, John. What, what are you saying about Cool Hand Luke or <laughs> something? That, yeah, okay, maybe... maybe Bonnie a, and Clyde. A yeah, <laughs> million okay. Other movies. Also, a similarly well-traveled area and setting, uh, historical setting for this, for this thing, um, for this story. However, yeah, I mean, looking at it in a com- in a, in a today's lens it's it's kind of not hard to see that it's a it's a really soft and kind of golden hour lens of this or uh viewed through a, a soft nostalgic golden hour lens um because we we meet tom hanks like america's sweetheart 
Mm-hmm. And of course, he, he's Well, this he's is playing a framed Ace. story, Greg. Don't forget yeah. to mention that this is a framed story. We meet an old man in a, yes. in a retirement community where, you know, they sit around and they watch nothing but daytime TV all day. And he gets to have his long walks because that's the only respite to his tedium he gets all day. And then uh, on a certain particular day, he's crying. He's sad. He's, he's misanthropic. He, yeah. he just cannot be consoled. And so someone takes him aside. Watching, watching a very genial... A uh, dance mm-hmm. number. Um, it's Ginger Rogers and uh, Fred Astaire singing Heaven or Cheek to Cheek, whatever that song is. So it should yeah, be exactly. very light and genial. Instead, it brings uh, Paul Edgecombe, like our hero, like down like down emotionally, and he has to be mm-hmm. brushed off, like inconsolable, crying yes. inconsolably. Mm-hmm. And I can't help but feel like this framing device is my, you kind of hit the, impre- the same impression I had, which is this movie feels like it's been through the Oscar bait centrifuge. And they've yeah. kind of stripped out a lot of the kind of uh, like interesting elements and kind of sanded off all the edges. And I can't help but feel like this old world weary framing device is because they're chasing that uh, that delicious Titanic Oscar gold. Like, oh, Titanic started with an oh, old Oh, Titanic white didn't lead. even start that. that. It was the English patient. It was the Merchant oh. Ivory, like heritage dramas. Like So a it was lot a whole of... 90s trend. Yes, it was a whole okay. 90s trend to do framework stories and to have somebody like basically deliver the import of the story. Mm. Yes. And here, at least, I feel like they justify it because later we'll see why yeah, that Ginger kind of Rogers Fred Astaire movie is so important. Um, mm. <laughs> uh, spoiler alert: It's because movies are important, John. All right. <laughs> it's because escape is important, but movies are magic. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but you're right. Things things feel sanded down. So we get here to the Louisiana, and production-wise, it's very humid. It's very sweaty. They they mm-hmm. overdid like the little gelatin that they stick on actors because <laughs> water water dries off. So the little movie magic they have to put gelatin on the actors to con- for sweat um, but you're right it does feel sanded off because the first thing we see is like these actors being saintly um, mm-hmm. one of them like our, our villain of the piece his name's Percy he comes in you know like kind of psychologically torturing this prisoner saying like dead man walking this guy's a, this guy's a dead man he's gonna he's facing mortality <laughs> and they and they say like like hey stop that um, and and it shows like I don't know, in maybe ways that aren't historically accurate, like how actually nice and genial these prison guards are. See, so that's what I actually appreciate about this movie, because again, if, if we, we can't help but welcome comparisons to Shawshank Redemption. And so yeah. the idea that we've already kind of tread that ground of, oh, look how dehumanizing and how horrible and how, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, hor- what's the, unjust our actual prison system is. Like yeah. that's... That's already well-trodden ground. Here, we're on this death row side. Like, we, we kind of see glances of the rest of prison life, but it's only, like, through the window. We're only stuck to this little segment of it. And th- they're trying to approach it with a certain level of reverence, even though the rest of the prison system obviously isn't built for that. So when we have this kind of, like, outsider who thinks, like, I'm going to be a prison guard, and I'm going to be cruel and mean, it's like, hey, hey, hey knock it off. Like, these are literally the last moments we're going to... So it has this kind of, like, nice kind of meditative church-like aspect, and I actually, I think that's the part of the movie that actually works, when it focuses on that kind of struggle between these two worlds, so... I, I didn't like that, because it feels dishonest, in a way. Mm, like, I guess that's obviously true. You can have, obviously, you can have a fantastical movie. You can have a perspective, any perspective you want. It can be hard-boiled, and yeah, show harsh realities, or it can be nice and genial. Um, the problem is, like, 
maybe maybe if like Tom Hanks's character stood alone in being that that mm-hmm. kind of genial, warm, or compassionate presence on on death row, but it's the fact that he's surrounded by four other guards who will always see the same way, who always like go along with the plan, uh, yeah. which we'll explain. Um, it so it's there's nothing really like brave about what he does. There's nothing really kind of like outside of the way he does, like, compared to Cool Hand Luke. Like, Cool Hand Luke's the only one who kind of thumbs his nose at authority compared to the other prisoners who are all beaten down. And that's what makes him special, and that's what makes it, like, a story worth telling. Mm-hmm. And so, like, it it didn't feel like a, a story worth telling. And it, I'm glad you mentioned the framework story because they never cut back to it until the very end. And so, like, I'm picturing this old lady, like, who starts playing solitaire, like, oh, uh, tell, <laughs> tell me, Paul, tell me more about Mr. Jingles, the, the nice rat. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, if if you stripped out that framing device and you kind of focused more on him trying to, you're absolutely right. The problem is like all the people under him are like of the same level. Like you mentioned, Percy, uh, Percy's the only one who's like kind of cruel and mean. It doesn't exactly follow orders and go along with this flow. Mm-hmm. And that's why I thought it was interesting when they introduced Wild Bill, played by the great Sam Rockwell, who like obviously challenges this notion of like, we can be kind, we can talk to these people, we can reason yeah. with them. And then obviously <laughs> we have someone who's so obstinate, so antisocial, like who cannot be reasoned with to really kind of butt heads and really kind of show that maybe his style of prison uh, control doesn't work. Like yeah. so, that aspect I thought was interesting, and I think you could build a great movie if you reconfigured thing and rewrote the script from the ground up to just focus on that. Instead, the main prisoner we end up focusing on is John <laughs> Coffey, played by the late great Michael Clark Duncan. Rest yeah, in power. yeah, uh. but okay. <laughs> so here's the thing. <laughs> Again, you're going to defend one choice. I, I'm going to. Um, to kind of uh, loosely give credence and and a little context to what we're watching here. Mm-hmm. So what th- what we're seeing here is basically a magical negro. Yes. Now John now what is that? That is a trope in which um because for a long time a lot of stories centered around how um slave care, how not slaves but like African Americans um could be evil or based in kind of like racial bias. Mm-hmm. And I think um some writers i think compassionately was their intention like wanted to take it the other way like they wanted to show them like as genuinely like good saintly people the problem and a lot of the times that takes place in their imagination where like they have the supernatural like kind of element to them yeah and the problem with that trope even if you are like portraying this character as nice you know and saintly is like you're still otherizing them you're still not treating them as human beings instead like and you're giving them no agency either yes yes and so john coffee although we don't actually see him like even though he's the like kind of impetus for telling the story like hey let me tell you about my time as a prison guard on death row and it starts with john coffee it's not really about him or his magical powers or at least in the first let's say hour of this three hour <laughs> yes uh, <laughs> and that's why i also said there's half a good movie here because literally you can cut off half of it and still have a movie <laughs> yeah <laughs> um so yeah we know that he's a gentle giant Mm-hmm. And I think they all know. He don't that. have that fancy book learning. But let me <laughs> yeah. tell you, he's got there's some also, old-fashioned yes, also, wisdom. <laughs> yeah, there's also the way in which he talks. Um, 
well, maybe we'll speak to Stephen King or Frank Darabont's skills as writers. However, it's not in crafting dialogue that's unique to a certain character. Like they pull from all the same like kind of tropes of a of a character of this type. Mm-hmm. You know, saying like boss or sir, like you know, like yep. again being slow and dim-witted and uh, functionally illiterate. And yeah, so it's it. It really does smack of like awful stereotyping. It, very like, cringy. Even, very cringy. Yeah, even if yeah, even if like the stereotyping's positive or whatever, it's still a stereotyping and otherizing of this character, and in in ways that are also like very obvious. Like you can already point out, like wait a minute, uh, his initials are uh, JC, just like hmm. another uh, famous uh, redemptive figure. Um, oh, I wonder really? what that means for his fate. Yeah. Oh, you see, Greg, it's a it's a it's a little bit of an Easter egg. You see. <laughs> J is the tenth letter of the alphabet. C is the third letter. To add those together, thirteen. Meaning this character is going to be very unlucky. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's good. He he is mighty unlucky. However, I mean, the, from the part of, from, I I couldn't un- negotiate the tone either. Because yeah, we're bringing in this magical Negro character, mm-hmm. and from here it's very fably. Like other than uh, Percy being a prick and breaking a, a one prisoner's fingers unprovoked. Uh, from there, it's like very fableish. Like then, here comes Mr. Jingles the Mouse, and it becomes like almost like a like a kid's tale of like yeah. the the mouse in the prison. And then later, like we meet Dell's character, and we see his fate, and then it becomes like a Stephen King horror movie. Mm-hmm. And and like I think it the movie takes its time in terms of pacing to kind of get you from like this child that like fable this this like children's book like fable to the Stephen King horror movie of a guy like kind of uh, suffering at the electric chair, like but. Again, you can't really negotiate it, and again, like the like the woman who's listening to Paul H. Combs like uh, narration of the story in a nursing home, like I I couldn't see myself like invested over the course of three hours, like mm-hmm. you know listening in closely. So, on the day of my judgment, when I stand before God, and He asks me why did I did I kill one of His true miracles what am I going to say that it was my job it was my job you tell God the father it was a kindness you done I know you heard that word I can feel it on you but you ought to quit on it now I want it to be over and done I do. I'm tired, boss. Tired of being on the road, lonely as a sparrow in the rain. I'm tired of never having me a buddy to be with, to tell me where we's going to, coming from, or why. Mostly, I'm tired of people being ugly to each other. I'm tired of all the pain I feel in here in the world every day. There's too much of it. That's the other thing, too. It doesn't really, like... There's one shocking thing in the middle, which is, like, something that grabs your attention. Like, yeah. there's not a whole lot that kind of, like, grabs you about this movie. Like, even production-wise, it feels like a, like a TV show in terms of how flat the lighting is. 
Um, well, yeah, how... it's like it's because they like obviously the idea is that they're in a very limited space, but and like they don't even have the whole kind of prison to kind of scale out to. It's literally just this one hallway, and yeah. so you're right. They film it only at a certain amount of different angles, and the lighting, yes, doesn't really change that much. E- like even from daytime to nighttime, like the lighting doesn't change all that much. <laughs> and maybe it's because like there's also this kind of implication that uh, John Coffey's powers are like electrical in some kind of nature, and it's. Th- like the only time maybe the reason why the lighting is so kind of like bland is so that when the lights do start flickering and sparks start you know shooting out from all the lightning bolts like maybe that's why to like again wake us up but it's like that doesn't it is an excuse to like oh we're loading to a false sense of security and then oh look out someone's on fire you know <laughs> yeah yeah i mean well at least that's like a, a practical effect i think with the other thing we should think about is the way in which we manifest john coffee's powers mm-hmm. like so he he basically sucks out these evil spirits through touch and through his mouth. So it's like this glowing light in the mouth. And that looks fine. I think mm-hmm. they did that with like real lighting. But then they rely on this, uh, on the CGI effect of like flies, like kind of like um, emerging from his mouth, like evil spirits or somehow like he's the conduit for these evil spirits and he's able to release them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like kind of 90 CGI and it doesn't quite work. I don't know how, maybe how it, comparatively in like 1999 i can't we can't cast our minds back there but like i'm wondering did you even need to see it at all yeah i think like, it actually... can you leave it up to your imagination or can you like here's the thing like can you give the audience any credit and the movie says no you can't like you have to see <laughs> things like as they are and as we tell them to you <laughs> like like again the genial guards like everybody wears their hearts on their sleeves they're either good or they're bad yeah. like percy the villain and and where I didn't like it the most was in the characterization of Percy the villain because at first we see him cruel as cruel mm-hmm. and then later we see him as cowardly when Wild Bill, the, the unstable, the really uh, trouble inmate, like uh, actually threatens the guard like he's too cowardly to shoot him or, mm-hmm. or react or save his fellow guard. Um, so it's like one or the other. Like there's no redeeming quality. And then we go, yeah, and then we go back to cruel because again, yeah. like he doesn't wet the man's sponge before he, you know, puts it on when they send him to the electric chair, and that obviously causes a fire and a whole, you know, brutal, horrific scene. Um, so you're right. Like we go from like cruel to green and cowardly back to cruel. And yeah. then they also kind of, like, they have a little scheme in order to uh, save the wife of James Cromwell. Like, that's another plot point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and obviously, he won't participate in that. And so that could have been maybe a possible redemption arc for him. It's like, no, instead, they lock him up in the padded room. <laughs> yeah. And he's also, like, the, the scion of the governor or something. So he's a spoiled rich kid or something. Yeah. Or he gets preferential treatment. So it's clear that he's not human in any way. He's mm-hmm. the he's the bad guy, the one you're supposed to go and shake your fist at whenever you see him on screen. And God bless the the actor Doug Hutchinson. Like I think he does a fine job at that. But like it's clear like you're you're supposed to see this character as one way, and it's totally unnuanced, and it's not really like it's not going to be any. We're not going to leave anything up to your imagination really. And that's in spite of this like imaginary setup where you have this um, I, I won't say unlikely uh, prisoner or something, but like. This this symbol of, of of cultural hatred is actually like this angel, mm-hmm. and has these healing powers and and stuff like that. Like, it it's still like there's no, you're, they don't give the viewers any credit in terms of interpreting it any different way or or, or I don't know, just like <laughs> like in in any new or imaginative ways. Like again, we're relying on the magical Negro trope. We're relying on guards being either cruel or saintly and nothing in between. Like, yeah, and the music to the movie does no favors either because yeah. there's a like it's 
kind of the classic kind of like bombastic like the swells of the trumpets when something you know and yeah. especially with the scenes with the mice like the clarinet yeah. comes in it's like and it, again like you said like a children's movie yeah like you know it's like <laughs> it's so kind of like painfully obvious like yeah and I, I chalk that up to again it going through the awards bait centrifuge. Like we have yeah. to make it. It's had. It's got to be a crowd pleaser. It's got to be a rouser. They got to be up on their chairs at the end clapping. The magic yeah. of movies. <laughs> well, let, let's get to that because I I feel like it. It kind of pulls it around in the last half hour, um, mm. and that's where it really lays on like thick the the magic of movies. Because I think as a storyteller and as somebody who's basically telling lies um, to emotionally manipulate <laughs> others, you have to believe like in the power of storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so like one of John Coffey's last wish, uh, last wish before he's sent to the electric chair is, I want to see a flicker show. I want to see a movie, and it turns out to be the. Fred Astaire, uh, Ginger Rogers musical that caused uh, Paul that caused an, an older Paul Edgecombe to cry, and so like and yeah he's he's got this uh, be- uh, beatic lighting behind him uh, <laughs> of the the flickering of the projector behind like creating a halo around him and so yeah it's very obvious but when it just focuses on on Paul on excuse me Paul Coffey on <laughs> that's another actor <laughs> on Sean Coffey I think the movie works and instead it, it's too beholden to I think the novel's episodic nature because mm-hmm. I didn't know this the, the novel was serialized um that which is like kind of an old-fashioned yeah. publishing way of publishing instead of like as one big giant uh Stephen King tome instead of will serialize and at some point like the movie did feel like a little bit of episodes like chapter one Mr. Jingles or yeah, like exactly. chapter two Wild Bill comes into town like oh boy mm-hmm. like and and it, once we get to the final chapter once we just focus on John Coffey and all the characters, like, I can finally see them, like, now being more compassionate. Like, they kind of start as compassionate, but, like, now it, it makes more sense to me, and and it's hitting those those emotional beats that I really want it to. And it feels well, and more it, earned. And it also feels like they actually had a plan for John Coffey's kind of character and the arc invol- uh, revolving him and uh, Tom Hanks's character, mm-hmm. because... Like the kind of main interaction that they have in the first act is uh, Tom Hanks is is dealing with some business downstairs. He's having some issues <laughs> with his prostate, and uh, he yep. can't he can't pee. Um, yes, Tom he's Hanks. Got a, he's got a UTI. Yeah, <laughs> Tom Hanks loves peeing in movies. No one can yeah. stop him. <laughs> no, I can't believe that's got to be like a like a writer request. Like, do not ask Tom Hanks about his peeing. Uh, let's, but it's, let's call it's it. happened too many times for it not to be a coincidence. Exactly. So how you can be a credible journalist and not bring it up? <laughs> For for somebody who wants to know what we're talking about, like yes, uh, Tom Hanks's character in this movie has a UTI and struggles with peeing. Mm-hmm. This is in a long line, a, a long line, at least a dozen examples of Tom Hanks's characters who, at some point in their movies, pee. It's like in his writer. It's like if I'm going to star in your movie, I have to pee at some point yes. on screen yes. and make yeah. it sound like it's a good pee. Like I have to exaggerate <laughs> it. Some examples: his character's introduction in *The League of Their Own*, mm-hmm. he bumbles drunk into the into the urinals and pees. Mm-hmm. Uh, in in *Forrest Gump*. He meets Strip President John F. Kennedy while he has to pee. Mm-hmm. And they actually cut to later, he's in the bathroom peeing. Uh, <laughs> Captain Phillips. At one point, he's stuck in a lifeboat with the three Somali pirates. Uh, his little plan to get out, oh, uh, will you let me pee? Like you know, Apollo 13, I, they show the whole process of how astronauts <laughs> go to the bathroom. And we watch, watch the urine dance into the void. <laughs> yeah. I was willing to 
get subscribed to Apple TV Plus so I could see Greyhound this summer to see how he was able to, <laughs> to squeeze in, squeeze in, um, or squeeze out an example of peeing in this World War II drama. It's got to happen. It's too weird. It's I mean, weird. Sur- they're surrounded by water. Yeah. I mean, I yeah. think that's why they keep making uh, Toy Story movies. <laughs> it's because, like, Woody hasn't peed yet. We need yeah. to show how the toys go to the bathroom. <laughs> but anyway, back to the Green Mile and, uh, and mm-hmm. Paul H. Combs' UTI. Yes, he has yes. urinary so tract infection. Yeah. He has these magical healing powers, and, like, they're so kind of magical at some point mr jingles gets stepped on by again the cruel percy and he's able Mm -hmm. to revive him you know he's able to solve a bout of dementia he's able to solve this uti and he's able to cure death basically Mm -hmm. um i guess i I was trying i don't know there's no kind of classy way for me to like spoil this so i'm just going to spoil it we flash forward at the end of the movie after john coffee has been executed and that's when we kind of get the twist and the whole purpose of the framing device is that paul reveals that he's actually 108 years old and Mm -hmm. that mr jingles is still alive as well he's like you know 60 some some ridiculous age for a rat yeah and so the idea is that now he's got eternal life and he's still trying to kind of figure out what to do with it how did how did you feel about the twist i again it kind of came back to me emotionally i didn't like how treacly the narration was at the end Mm because yeah he explains to the uh, this this woman who's listening like yeah i'm 108 years old I've got this uh, basically eternal life. However, it's a curse, and I'm going to see people die. And then they cut to a, a few events in the future, including this poor woman's funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, this poor woman who's had to listen to this internal story. <laughs> um, and that would have been enough. But then he's like, uh, "Let me sum it up for you in in more in broader terms so that you really get it." Um, it's like everyone has their own green mile. Uh, the green, the real green mile was the friends we made along the way. <laughs> um, like, so I, I don't feel like it needed that, but like. Yeah, if it could, but at least with that little montage, it kind of like it's able to marry like some writing and some visuals in an unexpected way, or at least in a harsher way. Like, yeah, like that would suck to like live forever and not see any progress in life other than the ending otherwise in death. So, but yeah, to like kind of still sum it up in this really like I won't say childish, but like really obvious way, like so that everybody in the back can see. And that there's no like, it's just not. It's just not. Um, <laughs> I ha- I hate using this word, but it's not interesting enough. Like you didn't bring enough interest or enough new to the material. Exactly. Uh, at least compared to at least compared to the Shawshank Redemption. Like at least for that most of that movie, it's like in doubt whether Andy Dufresne actually committed this crime in a drunken rage. Well, like, that's here, the I yeah. Knew, that's the yeah. beauty of um, the Shawshank Redemption is there is that ambiguity. And yeah. the struggle, the whole arc of that movie is holding out hope when everything is so utterly hopeless. And mm-hmm. the problem with this movie is once you introduce magic and once you introduce kind of <laughs> real, like, you know, like fantasy like this, then it's like mm-hmm. fr- like all those kind of like stakes, all those moments that made the Shawshank Redemption so powerful are completely lost because it's like, well, of course he can magic his way out or something. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> like there's no real loss of hope because, I mean, death at this point isn't even, a, you know, a real stake so no
Maybe it's what people wanted in the movies, but like, I I can understand you don't want to see the hard, hard boiled nature of prison. Like you don't want to see Hadley like actually like you know chuck his nightstick in people's stomachs. Like, mm-hmm. and you don't want to see the N word like bandied about as it probably would have been mm-hmm. in 1935 Louisiana prisons. But like, th- there's a difference between that and this fantasy version, like almost like literally fantasy of like how nice everybody was and you know how. Uh, we can all find, you know, kind of solace and redemption at the end. That's what feels like phony to me. Like, you can have those. Like, those stories are great. I'm not saying that you shouldn't do a story like that. But I'm saying, like, when you do it this kind of clumsily mm-hmm. or this badly um, for a movie that's supposed to be for adults. Like, I, I don't know. Like... <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah, it kind of straddles and, and that also, line like, too much. Again, yeah, and, and something that... So it should long be dead from culture, like with this stereotype, this awful trope. That, mm-hmm. yeah. The gentle giant. Yeah, I was getting a lot of flashbacks of like fucking, what is it called? The the movie with the booster played by uh, Sandra Bullock. Oh, the blind side. <laughs> the blind side, that's the one, yeah. He's just a gentle giant. <laughs> yeah. He ain't scary like those other Negroes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> See, he don't even have a brain in his head. Like... You have to explain to him how to play football. Oh, God. Yeah. <sighs> it's so bad. And thankfully, the trope is dead. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly. It's, it's never coming back. Nope. Yeah. Never again. <sighs> I wish this was a movie that killed it, unfortunately, but sadly, no. no. But, yeah. <laughs> For only two years later, we had uh, our birthday brother, Matt Damon, starring in <laughs> The Legend of Bagger Vance. Oh, yes. <laughs> Looks like you lost your swing. Yeah. <laughs> we gotta go find it. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I think there is, like, there's the bones of a good story here if you mm-hmm. kind of focus on the right thing. But you're right; it's it's too it's too treacle. Yeah. It's too soft. It's too round. It's too squishy. It's too like yeah. oh, it's it's for the family. It's for everybody. It's a crowd pleaser. It's a fun little movie, you guys. Yeah, you when... cry at the right moments and you laugh at the right moments, and you never have to question yeah. anything you saw. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> When again, it could be hurtful to have to see that, like, mm-hmm. oh, oh, black people aren't human again. <laughs> or, oh, yeah. heaven forbid we challenge our audience in any kind of yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying in 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 our America <laughs> those those movies would be banned, but mm-hmm. still, this is this is a very poor example of it. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, I'm sorry, folks. Go watch the Shawshank Redemption again, or. I think more befitting uh, a man, uh, more befitting the talents of Michael Clark Duncan. Um, one thing I couldn't get out of my head with all the the accents, the southern the southern accents, mm-hmm. uh, the New Orleans drawl. Um, it reminded me of of I think one of the greatest comedic scenes of all time involving Michael Clark Duncan. It's in uh, Talladega Nights, the story of Ricky Bobby, <laughs> the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Greg. <laughs> yeah, the ballad of Ricky Bobby. Excuse me. Um, when he's convinced that he's paralyzed and they have to break the bad news that you're not actually paralyzed, Ricky. <laughs> Just drop it. Just drop in that clip. Like, yeah, I hope, I hope you two have sons, and they know how it feels to be told they're not paralyzed. Don't Clark you put Duncan that evil having... on me, Ricky Bobby? <laughs> yes, the greatest, the greatest line to ever. Don't you put that evil on us, Ricky Bobby? Don't you put that on us? You can't walk. <laughs> oh, brilliant! Oh, yeah, so sad he left us so soon. I know. <sighs> well, I 
like a lot of folks, uh, but mm. anyway, come on, John. Let's let's bring it back to something more. You're positive, right, Greg. Huh? Let's let's keep it yeah, positive. Let's, let's keep get it. that Thomas Newman score in here. That do 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 that trickly little uh, piano and the and a little clarinet. Like yeah, let's bring it home with a little bit of spotlight, shall we? Spotlight. 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 Don't you put that evil on me, Ricky Bobby? Don't you put that on us? Yes. John, recommend something nice to us, huh? Maybe something that's not as revisionist, maybe, hopefully. <laughs> um, there's still a fair bit of nostalgia what I have to recommend. Greg, okay. I'm going outside the Hollywood system for you, okay? I want to recommend an independently produced documentary that premiered on YouTube, so you can watch it for free right now. John, I told you we're not going to talk about loose change. Okay? <laughs> I am not going to hear these stories. Again. I want to tell you a little movie called Blandemic. <laughs> they don't yeah. want you to see it. <laughs> yeah, sorry. You said independently produced a documentary on YouTube, and I, my blood ran cold. I'm like, what the hell is he going <laughs> to no, Greg. As you as you know about me, I've I've made it no secret that my favorite YouTube channel is Defunctland, and one of yes. the reasons why I like Defunctland is the man behind it, Kevin Perger. He is not vain. He, we don't know what his face looks like, and he's also willing to step back and and take a producer role whenever he mm-hmm. likes. And uh, for this instance, there was a group of filmmakers who were um, producing a movie about a very specific attraction that existed on Disneyland at the time. They were going to shop it around. But Kevin Perger said, hey, I'll be your producer. I'll be your beneficiary, your patron. You can host it on my channel. And so that's what he's done for them. And the movie is live from the space stage, the story of Halix. Halix, okay. Now, I know you're going to have a lot of questions, Greg. Now, this story takes place in the 1980s, so you can rest assured Uh, the answer is probably cocaine. So, (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Speaking of nostalgia and trickliness, I thought it was going to be like one of those kids riding bikes, and it's like (laughs) E.T. and all those movies we loved as kids, but like, no. No, no, no. So um, for a very brief, I think it was literally only five months, um, Disneyland Mm -hmm. needed something to put on the space stage uh, under Space Mountain. You know, okay. it's Tomorrowland. They need something kind of like futuristic. Unfortunately, this was like the 1970s. You know, Disney World, Disneyland was still like when it came to their live shows, it was still very I'm, much like Dixieland yeah, jazz and barbershop quartets. <laughs> I'm familiar, yeah, with the area you're talking about. It's mm-hmm. kind of like as you're walking to, they got to fill out that space somehow. So they have a like stage there, and I think there's like a submarine. I in air quotes. I mean, you get to go into the water. It's pretty cool. But that's that's what's in that area. I know what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So the the people behind Disney Records who were kind of having a string of of good successes with like disco themed stuff kind of realized, mm-hmm. oh, we need to follow the trends. Well, it's 1980. What do we do? <laughs> okay, I've got some ideas. <laughs> Swarming around pop culture at the time. They had allergies, right, John? That was <laughs> yes. that was that. Or... <laughs> the movie makes no explicit reference to, to drug use, but you have to figure it's going on. <laughs> but, okay. So in this miasma of you know late seventies, early eighties pop culture, you've got elements such as you know the Empire Strikes Back coming out soon. Mm-hmm. You've got shows like Kiss, and you've got uh, magazine publications like Heavy Metal. So what mm-hmm. they do is they come up with this band called Halix. They went through many iterations for the names. How they settled on Halix again, probably cocaine. <laughs> yeah, can you yeah can you spell that Halix? It's H A L Y X. So it kind okay. of sounds like Helix with the vowel switched out. <laughs> yeah, but it's not <laughs> exactly. 
again when they're interviewing these people how did you come up with halix is like i don't know it was it's the <laughs> dumbest sounding name but it was somehow the least dumb sounding name <laughs> so they came up with this concept of this band called halix uh, it has a human guitarist, a human lead singer, a Wookiee-like creature as the bassist, um, cool. an amphibian as like a secondary kind of bassist, and they were able to uh, hire this um, like kind of short dancer guy so he could kind of do like aerobics on stage as well. They were all amazingly talented performers, and what's kind of interesting mm-hmm. is that they were all kind of like seasoned veterans of the biz. <laughs> so when like okay. when their agent comes calling, hey, how would you like to put on a Wookiee suit and perform at Disneyland? <laughs> a lot of them were like, hey, money's money. Let's do money's this. Mo- yeah. <laughs> nice. It sounds like a family-friendly version of Guar. Pretty much, yeah. And yeah. Uh, I think the, the synthesizer, the guy behind the synthesizers was the most talented because he had the setup they, they dressed him up to look like a stormtrooper and like a droid and so his big entrance was they had him on a cart like a golf cart with all six of his synthesizers like coming out and so he's like performing it's it's absolutely bonkers um it ran for like five months and there was like kind of talks like you know it's Disney we're talking here so it's like it's all about merchandising potential so there was like talk of like oh if it gets popular enough we'll start doing like records we'll start doing like action figures and things like that and mm-hmm. then sadly it just kind of never took off <laughs> so yeah <laughs> well this I this is the hard part of like entertainment like you can't guarantee like what the mm-hmm. uh what the public actually likes it's like a William Goldman's favorite quote nobody knows anything like exactly. nobody knows what what will actually attract the public's imagination so mm-hmm. I mean heck it sounds like they gave it their all though um, no and that's kind of I think that's ultimately where the story lies is like like you said a no one really knows no one can you can kind of immerse yourself but you can never really calculate perfectly what will catch on or not uh they quote mm-hmm. someone you know at the, at, uh, in the movie and he says like there's nothing musically I don't understand how you can create trends I have no idea <laughs> so yeah um like and so it's ultimately about like you know kind of like just this weird moment in time where all these kind of elements kind of came together and made this thing that just didn't catch on but now like 30 years later you've got these people who are like nostalgic over the weirdest things and again it's not like kind of lionizing it being like oh my gosh this is worthy of preserving (laughs) but it's just kind of like it's just kind of funny on 30 years later like the people who do kind of remember it and kind of like are experiencing it now for the first time realizing what it was and what was kind of missed it's kind of surprising Mm -hmm. so it's it's just kind of a short light documentary very well made i kind of wish it had a little bit more of a kind of style to it but it's very much kind of like dry talking heads there's no narration Mm -hmm. the documentary documentarians are never seen they never make their presence felt it's just all kind of straightforward these are the facts ma'am so but other than that i think it's just kind of a fascinating look and again it's free on youtube so check it out okay sorry I can't let this pass. Did you just make a Dragnet reference? Yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sorry. Again, not going to let that slide. Uh, we'll talk about this off air. But... Yes. <laughs> uh, okay. Uh, I, I, there's one so, other. There's one more thing I wanted to mention before I forget. I couldn't quite weave okay. it in. But also, the composer, or at least one of the people who worked on the music for this band, was Mike Post. Are you familiar with Mike Post? No, the name sounds familiar. And now you'll tell me he's one of the greatest, most accomplished Grammy-winning musicians of all time. <laughs> he is uh, responsible for the theme song for The A-Team, Magnum okay. P.I., Greatest American Hero. But of course, okay. his greatest legacy will be the transformation of television through two simple notes. 
Dung dung. Really? <laughs> yes, he's the man oh. behind. He's the man behind the music for Law and Order as well. So. Okay. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So just so he, also... so that was his idea. The dong dong. Because that's more like a transition thing. Well, I mean, like he the... had to compose it. Oh, maybe that's it. yeah. Well, obviously, yeah. He composed the great like theme song. Like I can hear it in my head. Yeah, but the bomb, bomb, the little that that little uh, Pavlovian like response that you have. Like, <laughs> well, again, that's why I was making these Dragnet references, Greg. It's all coming together. Okay. All right, I'm just yeah. constantly always thinking about you know crime procedural shows. <laughs> okay. All right, but I'll check it out. I, I'm glad it's it's not got. Uh, because I have some qualms with Kevin Perjurer, like you know, mm-hmm. like um, as let's let's say prolific, because he's been doing this for years, and I know he takes breaks in between like big videos, but he seems to be doing a lot more lately, I mm-hmm. guess. Or well, and again, so, like uploading I said, something every week, yeah, uploading something substantial every week, like yeah, at least like a twenty-minute like summation of something. But a lot of the times, it could just be like, uh, here's a show I liked as a kid and why it's great <laughs> or something. <laughs> Well, so and why I just, it's history? Like it's not—it's not just something I liked. It's history now, yes. and I made it history. Yeah. <laughs> well, again, I think it's also—I think there is this kind of desire, like there is literally very little evidence left that Halix ever existed. Those masters mm-hmm. are gone. There is literally okay. like one prop left from their stage show. <laughs> so I do think there is this kind of desire, and this kind of like push and pull. It's like not trying to overly lionize it. Like this was a great cultural moment, but it's like, hey. Let's not let this disappear off the face of the earth. Let's at okay. least try to preserve enough, it a yeah. little bit. So, okay. I think that's where Kevin Perger usually lands. So, yeah. <laughs> All right, disagree. Let things <laughs> dust the dust. You know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yep. Greg's a cynical so and so. Progress. Moving yep, on. There's nothing new under the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Moving that's on. That's vanity. Yep. You can't stop what's coming. That's vanity. All right. <laughs> there you go. I don't care what. The colorful costumes you're putting on when from your Halix days or whatever. <laughs> That's vanity. All right. Can't stop what's coming. Mm-hmm. There you go. Anyway, um, that, that concludes our spotlight section. Um, we're going to continue with something that I thought was hugely successful last week. Um, it's a bit of mind combat. Oh. John, get ready for psychological warfare and <laughs> trivia challenge. <laughs> I'm ready. <laughs> I'm ready. Yeah. Now, for though, if you tuned into our last episode, you recall um, John was very magnanimous in uh, choosing to base his questions around the Naked Gun, a comedy classic that we both love. Mm-hmm. Um, now, John, this was a mistake on your part. Oh, I will not meet you halfway. I will not be magnanimous. My trivia topics are designed to be ruthless. They're designed to be psychologically damaging, and they will make a fool out of you. All right, that is that is my aim, and so I hope you're ready for again. I'm already this, crying this. at the thought. Take <laughs> this. <laughs> oh, oh, John, keep those tears ready. All right, because to celebrate the tenant's fifth straight week as the number one at the box office, we're going to base these questions around my favorite filmmaker and yours, your favorite filmmaker. You told me, Christopher Nolan. Oh no. <laughs> All yes. right. Let me get into Christopher Nolan's headspace. <laughs> Numbers, factoids. <laughs> this screenplay holds up. <laughs> Architecture, John. Yes, connect the dots, okay? Yes. It all has to make logical sense. And these are going to be very logical questions. Are you ready? Okay. Yes. Question number one. Christopher Nolan has a brother named Jonathan Nolan who mm-hmm. has collaborated with him on five movies. Yes. Jonathan has also helped co-create two TV shows. Mm-hmm. John, name one of those two TV shows. <laughs> well, Craig, <laughs> first I must scoff at your first question because obviously okay. you know I am the biggest Westworld stan out there. 
And okay. also for bonus points, I can rec- I can tell you the second mo- uh, TV show, which is mm-hmm. Person of Interest. Wow, way to go! I I didn't think you would know that. My hint for you was going to be that it starred Ben from Lost. Um, <laughs> no, I obviously yes, I know both of those shows. The reason why yeah. I know both shows is because both of them center around a. Oh, algorithm that can predict human behavior. So, <laughs> Jonathan yeah. Noland, uh, you know, interesting producer, maybe not the not the font of ideas, <laughs> not, not the <laughs> biggest imagination. Yeah, not a font of, of ideas, but that's okay. Listen, he's 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 usually successful. John, question two. Mm-hmm. Let's keep it in the family. Okay. Although Christopher Nolan has not worked with his brother on every film, mm-hmm. all eleven of his feature films have been made with his producing partner and life partner. John, what is Christopher Nolan's partner's name? Is it Emma Thompson? It's Emma something. I remember that much. That's all I can mm-hmm. remember, though. I think it's Emma Thompson, even though that's also the star of Saving Mr. Banks. But <laughs> I, I'll give you partial credit. It's Emma Thomas. Thomas. T- Ugh. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's, so it's that's her. Emma Watson and Emma Thompson. I was there. All yeah. Emma is yeah. way too popular. You British Brits, name. yeah, you Brits got to get. Speaking of being a little bit more creative in the Nolan family, you Brits got to <laughs> come up with some different ladies' names here. <laughs> it's all. I'm Nigel's not saying you have to go and Utah Emma's. and and yeah, I'm not saying you have to go Utah and add like 15 vowels to and and your uh, girls' names in D I N. Still, <laughs> come on, something else. Well, the problem all is, right. you know, a popular trend for Americans is to name it after like a city like Madison. It's like mm-hmm. you can't name a British kid like Worcestershire or something like that. <laughs> or Stratford upon Avon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this old daughter Stratford on Twine. <laughs> and anyway, after that brilliant commu- uh, British accent. <laughs> Question three. The films of Christopher Nolan have a rich plethora of sources, including mm. original screenplays, comic books, literature, and one remake. John, which of Christopher Nolan's films is an official remake? That would be none other than the uh, 1998—no, 1990s- eight- actually, it came out in early 2000s—Insomnia. That's correct. That is, is Insomnia. That is a Swedish remake, and the only reason I know that is because I am a Stellan Starsgard stan, <laughs> and I know yes. he started the original. So, <laughs> yes, it was—it's actually a Norwegian film. John. Oh, Norwegian, um, same difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah. Um, I also would have accepted Interstellar as a remake of Contact. But <laughs> there you go. <laughs> with, a, with a sprinkling of 2001 A Space Odyssey. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> okay, question four. Nolan has worked with over th- with 30, excuse me, exactly 30 Oscar-winning and Oscar-nominated performers over the course of his career. Mm. But only, only one 30? performance. <laughs> yep, mm. only 30. But only one performance has been nominated for a Christopher Nolan movie. John, what's the only performance to be nominated for an Academy Award in a Christopher Nolan movie? Well, it's got to be Heath Ledger as Joker, because he actually won for that, posthumously. That's correct. Oh, Again, that was going to be my hint. It also is the only performance that's won an Oscar for mm-hmm. being in a Christopher Nolan movie. Yep. That's a surprise. That's a surprise. Yeah. The only one. Yep. Wow. Okay. Yeah. I guess the the uh, the Academy doesn't like spectacle. They don't like cerebral uh, no. movies. They like tricky garbage, like Green Mile. I'm sorry, that was mean. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I uh, that'll go. That leads into my next question, John, because again, he's worked with a lot of uh, quality performers. Um, mm-hmm. So, question five, begin starting. <laughs> I was going to say beginning with Batman Begins. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nolan has famously worked with Michael Caine over the last 15 years. Mm-hmm. But what's the only Christopher Nolan film in those last 15 years where Michael Caine doesn't make an appearance? Last 15 years, you say? Yep. Does the following count? 
following. Is that what the first movie he ever made? With Killian is that your Murphy? final answer? Yeah. <sighs> yes, I'm going to go with that one. That is incorrect. Yeah, because um, I knew that movie was older than 15 years. Damn it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, to give you a hint, he still has a vocal cameo in the movie. Oh, 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 oh. Yes. Um, fuck. I know what movie you're talking about. Uh, <laughs> I can't remember. Damn Come it. On, John. It's his best movie. It's Dunkirk. That's right. Dunkirk. He's on the That's radio right. to, to one of the pilots. Yep. Yes. Going the the Jerry's, which sure not not to do that or something. I don't know. <laughs> to war, George. Yeah, yeah. That's all. That's all that you remember from Dunkirk. Yes, that's, that's fine. That's fine. Anyway. All right. Question six. In two thousand three, Nolan was hired to write and direct a film based on the life of Howard Hughes, mm-hmm. but it was abandoned because it would have been in direct competition with Martin Scorsese's own Hughes biopic, The Aviator. Mm-hmm. John, what comedy superstar? was attached to play Howard Hughes in Christopher Nolan's abandoned biopic. I'm going to go with the obvious choice, Sasha Baron Cohen. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> um, Is that your final answer? Will Ferrell. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, I, I've got a hint for you. It, it's a little too tough. It's, it's another award-winning performer, John. Mm-hmm. Uh, this actor actually won two Golden Globes. Uh, back-to-back years, one for best leading performance in a drama and one for best leading performance in a comedy. You got me. Obviously, I'm, right. I don't know the Golden Globes. <laughs> so why you thought that okay, would help yeah. me out, I don't know. <laughs> well, th- so he's never been nominated for an Oscar. I'm sure this will be his Oscar bait. It's Jim Carrey. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Oh. Mm-hmm. I mean, is there still a chance that this movie could be made? Uh, th- possibly. I think, yeah, he said, like, let's give it a few years or something. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it would focus on the, the kind of older and crazier years of, of Howard Hughes' life. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. He he said it was, like, the best thing he's ever written, which, um, <laughs> depending on your perspective, <laughs> on Christopher Nolan's career, it could be a good thing or a bad thing. Uh, <laughs> but, so, ho- hopefully it, okay. they don't abandon it, but let's see. It'll be a, a new career trajectory where he's not, like... I've got, I've got to make uh, cerebral films about like you know that are big and bombastic and have a budget of three hundred million dollars. I mean, without or whatever, the spooky so teaser, at least it'll be something different. Even people even know it's about Howard Hughes. Like, come on. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Question seven. What Academy Award nominated filmmaker got into a physical alternation uh, altercation with Nolan at a party because Jude Law was attached to being the Prestige and thus could not do this director's movie. It's got to be Christian Bale, because we all know how volatile he can be. <laughs> oh, good for you! <laughs> no, this is a, <laughs> no, this is, this is a uh, Oscar-nominated oh. writer and director. Oof. And thus far, I, I don't think Christopher Nolan's done any... Or, excuse me, Chris, Christian Bale has done any uh, directing <sighs> as um, of yet. Yeah. I will say he's very volatile, oh, it's gotta be Quentin like Christian Bale. Um, Quentin yes. Tarantino, is yes. that your final answer? Yes. Damn it. Okay, that is incorrect. Um, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say my hint would be that um, Jude Law obviously did drop out of the prestige and t- was able to appear in this director's movie, and that was I Heart Huckabees. The director oh, was right. David O. Russell. Yes, he's also yeah, gotten mm-hmm. quite physical in the past. Yeah. Yeah. We've heard stories. We've heard mur- murmurings. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of somebody who hasn't had uh, uh, Christopher Nolan's uh, career trajectory, <laughs> after Joy, he's just mm. fallen off the face of the yeah. earth. I don't know where the hell he went. Yeah. Okay, John. I, I think you're at the same point where I was. You're mm-hmm. five yep, out of seven yep, yep. at this point. 
Let me see. Yeah, five out of seven. So, John, here it is. The last question in your mm. Christopher Nolan round of trivia. All yes. right, so you ready? Question eight. Again, this is mind combat. Okay. In the 1998 movie, Disney movie Mulan, our protagonist's love interest, Captain Lee Shang, is voiced by noted character mm-hmm. actor B.D. Wong. Uh, however, Wong does not provide the singing voice. What former 70s pop idol provided the singing voice That's, uh, for this character? Donny Osmond, right? John, are you Stanley Cup <laughs> Stanley Cup winning goaltender Andre Vasilevsky? Because nothing gets past yes. you. That is correct. Donny Osmond provided a singing voice. I Disney's don't even remember Mulan. how you connected to Christopher Nolan. That doesn't make. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. It was okay. really hard to come up with a question. So, I I just came across that fact and it was okay. too fascinating not to share. So, and surprisingly, he does not make a cameo in the new version. It's like, come on, guys. I know, unbelievable. I mean, yeah. I would have loved to see <laughs> actually uh, we were Christina go- Aguilera like pop up as like a mirror salesman woman or something. That would have been hilarious. <laughs> yeah, I you when this episode started ages ago, we were kind of goofing mm-hmm. on the AV Club. One thing I they're they're trying to I don't know be more representational in their work, and they they want to give in their review of Mulan they gave Disney credit for not whitewashing the character. And I'm like, what the hell are you talking about? They weren't going to do Mulan starring Taylor Swift. <laughs> like, what the hell are you talking about? It's like, why didn't we get any credit for friggin' Aladdin? Like, they could have put white people in that one, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, let's give Christopher Nolan credit uh, for casting John David Washington in Tenet. He doesn't have magical powers, so he's not a magical Negro trope. Technically, he does. Actually, he yeah, I think time. also Donald Glover appears Whatever. in that movie. I saw Still, and I was like, what's Donald Glover doing in here? Really? He's in everything okay. these days. No. Can't stop him. No. <sighs> you know what you also yes. can't stop? Well, this podcast from just running over the world. We're just just killing it. We're crushing it. We're just doing a, <laughs> we're just doing a great a job. Plus, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> What a great job. Anyway, as we fling our arms around the room. But yes, I I hope you enjoyed this last hour of uh, mm-hmm. of the trench and commentary and and wonderful mind games via trivia, um, and an honest hearty recommendation. So we've given you all that for free. If you could do something for us, give us a subscribe on Apple Podcasts mm-hmm. and Stitcher. Uh, give us a follow on social media. We're at Facebook and Twitter. And uh, there's a third thing I can't remember. Um, rate and, rate and review us on, on Apple Podcasts or whatever your podcast service of choice is. Like, it's it's so important oh, yeah, that you subscribe. Yes. Without those subscriber numbers, I, I just don't know what we'll do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we won't feed our family <laughs> off those precious likes and social currencies. You no. see. Yes, exactly. Uh, no, we don't ask for we don't ask for much. We don't ask for money for this. No, and we don't make any money. Uh, it's not out of editorial independence. It's <laughs> that nobody will pay for it. However, I think we we do want to have a sizable audience. I think we do want to like share the the joy that we do find in movies. So yeah, give us a rating. You know, have it be five stars. If it's one star, then forget no, no, it. No. Take it back. I don't I don't want it. But um, <laughs> but yes. Yeah. And the only thing left to do is tell you what we're watching for the next episode which me and Greg have not discussed yet, but I have a, I have a sneaking suspicion he <laughs> might agree with my recommendation. Greg, we are hashtag 90s mm-hmm. kids, and I know cool. we hate to repeat ourselves, but I yeah. think it is of the most vital importance that we revisit a classic from the 90s that I don't think either one of us has seen. I think it's time we finally settle in and watch Hocus Pocus. Oh, well... <laughs> 
John, do you clearly? Yes, we are, we may be uh, hashtag nineties kids. Um, however, you did not marry one, so you do not have the joys of watching Hocus Pocus every year. So obviously, I'll be glad to watch it again okay. this Halloween season and also share it, share its I glories mean, with you. Yeah. I won't have to like take time away from my my wife again. We're not. I'm not going to be like. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. I got to spend three hours this week watching some uh, three hour long uh, black and white uh, Bellatar movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like the other thing too is I'm gay, and so apparently it's like a, a rite of passage <laughs> for '90s kids who are also gay to have seen Hocus Pocus and have something awaken within them. So we'll see if it has, I, it has any effect on me <laughs> as a as a yeah, as yeah. a 43 year old man. <laughs> yeah. As a Gen Xer, you know, <laughs> yeah. we're so disaffected. Oh, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Take who cares a hike, Clayton. It? No one cares, buddy. <laughs> I'm not voting this election cycle. You should, you should probably vote. No, you should. Yeah. You should probably. You should definitely vote. <laughs> yeah. In any event, John. Uh, yeah. Let's see if it's a, if it's a, another product of nostalgia or like a, the, really a genuine um, look at uh, at haggery, um, <laughs> which I know a lot of. <laughs> Uh, uh, let's say, let's say, uh, the people of your age and ilk <laughs> aspire to, I guess. There we go. <laughs> we shall see. We shall see. Yeah. <laughs> well, until then, thank you everybody for listening. Yes. And two weeks from now, please do keep aspiring. Hey, hey.